I come to these two stories this morning, the calling and commissioning of a very motley crew. I hope that conjures up a few images in at least some of your minds. And the crushing crowds, curious and skeptical and desperate to meet Jesus, come to this text this morning with joy. Joy because of how Jesus responds to them and how Jesus commissions them and the way in which he sends them and us out. You see, Jesus isn't just offering a new teaching. There were teachings everywhere. They had teachings coming out their ears. They had little tiny religious sects among the Jews, everyone with their own teaching, different rabbis with their own interpretations. To say nothing of the confusion of the stew of the Greco-Roman Roman pantheon of religions, Gnostic religions everywhere, each with their own way, you know, to climb the ladder of being, to rise up the ranks so you can finally get for yourself the cool pointy hat and the secret handshake and arrive. Now, Jesus isn't just bringing a new teaching, but to those who would follow him and know him and love him and be sent by him as his disciples, it's a new way to live, a new way to be human, a way of recreation. And in that recreation, that new heavens, new earth way to live, deeply to know our reason why, why we exist. To be human in his image and to know why we were put on this earth, why you're here in Santa Fe in 2022 with breath in your lungs. In all of that, Mark shows us something really beautiful and that is that he welcomes us. Those crowds who crush in, that motley crew, the scent and the following are also the welcomed, and the empowered. And so in these two stories, Mark's point really comes to us as a series of questions, inviting questions. First, as a foundation, who do you follow? Who do we put our trust in? Do we put our trust and our hope and our faith in one, in something, in a person who knows you by name, who has the power to save, who can help you? With all the stuff that's going on in your life right now, behind the fact that you're, you know, looking pretty good, and you're in church, and you're wearing a collared shirt or a nice outfit, but God knows what's really going on. The challenges, the joys, the pain, the sorrow, the relationships, the partners, the loved one, the kids, to say nothing of the grandkids. Who do you follow? Because ours as humans is not a question of if, but who. Not if we follow, but who do we follow? And then secondly, why? And if our following is of Jesus, perhaps the crowds and the disciples can teach us something and convict us mercifully because it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. To be aware and honest about our own motives. I love that Jesus gathers us here, not just to play patty cake religion with us, not to hide and stand behind our false selves and the things that we put up, the barriers, the things that we use to defend and cope, but to get down to the realness and the honesty of our hearts. Why do we follow Jesus? And if he is the king, if he is the one, the lover of your soul, if he is worthy of all glory and praise and honor and to be followed, what does that mean? What does that mean for us who have it in this place often so easy? 
and are so infrequently brought to the end of ourselves to know our need because we are so frequently adamant about maintaining control of our lives. Making sure each spinning plate is spinning properly and in order. What does it mean then to lay down, to surrender, to be in total submission to this rabbi, to the king? To answer these questions, Mark blesses us with these two stories. First, a great crowd follows Jesus. Point number one, for those who write things down in bulletins. A great crowd follows Jesus. Point number two, the twelve are called and commissioned. We start here with these first few verses, 7 to 12, a great crowd follows Jesus. And again, the big question here for you and for me, for the readers of Mark's gospel, who are dispersed across the Roman Empire, many in Asia Minor, many being persecuted, will you follow him? Will you follow him? But that brings up for us, doesn't it, perhaps a corollary, an equally deep question, one that we're often afraid to ask because it is exposing. And we don't love to be vulnerable. We have this faint memory of the garden. When Adam and Eve were there before God, before one another, naked and not ashamed. As some of y'all might say, naked. And I don't just, I mean, physically, I doubt it. When they're going out to work and like go beast mode and till the garden and get some meat for dinner, I'm sure they had some clothes that they were wearing, okay? But naked here means they were not ashamed. They were fully known by God and one another and there was nothing, no barrier holding them back from God and one another in that knowledge. Not the case for us. It is a scary thing to be fully known. And it conjures up that most basic of all questions. Can I be fully known and fully loved? So not only will you follow Jesus, but in the scariness of the surrender of that, will he welcome you? You, who he really knows. Like he really knows you. Not just the stuff that I know, which is already too much about most of you. Will he Welcome. To answer these questions, Mark sets the context for us. Jesus at this point already early in Mark's gospel is facing some serious opposition. At the end of uh, the last story, chapter 3, verse 6, we see a significant escalation on the part of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They are now at the point of plotting to murder this guy. A formal charge is brought heresy and blasphemy. And this Jesus, this Yeshua, Joshua, who claims to be a rabbi, he deserves the death penalty for the sort of stuff he's doing. But of course, as we said last week, religion always reduces us to a puddle of incoherent ironies. And so it is the Pharisees in their attempt to keep the law who now have to partner with those who are worse than the tax collectors, the Herodians. Because the Herodians are a political power group aligned with Rome, basically established as a pseudo-king in the region to tamper down the religious and messianic expectations of such as just like the Pharisees. This is where Jesus is. And so our text is a bit of a transition text. We're told that he withdraws. And this doesn't mean that he flees. He's not afraid of them. He's just going somewhere else so that he can minister. Next week, when John gets back from his vacation... He's going to preach on the next text where Jesus faces more opposition, this time from his own family. But Mark's point is this. 
It's getting heavy here, people. It's getting heavy. It's getting serious to follow this Jesus. It's not cheap grace. It's not easy believism. This is a guy who is now marked. There is a bounty on his head. Sort of like a a scary movie. Have you ever watched a scary movie with no sound? It's really weird. It's actually not as scary at all. In fact, they, you know, they've done these things where they have people watch a scary movie without sound and people end up laughing at the scary parts. Because just the visual, it's like, yeah, whatever. But when you add in that suspenseful music, that's enough for me, a grown man at the tender age of 40, to have a pillow like right here. (laughs) While my daughter Violet is saying, Daddy, it's not that scary. (laughs) Okay, this is suspenseful music playing in Mark's gospel to build tension and anticipation. Because despite the fact that he's a marked man, his fame is spreading around the entire region. The places that Mark lists in verses 7 and 8, did you notice that? All these towns, they're coming from here, there, and everywhere. It's meant to conjure up in your mind, if you can envision a map of Israel, basically a compass. They're coming from the north, the south, the east, and the west. The crowd is gathering from all across greater Palestine. And what of the crowd? We're told that they're a great crowd. They're large. Why are they making their way up into this podunk area of Israel that is the northern tip of the Galilee? Well, they've heard. They've heard of the one who not only speaks with authority, but puts his money where his mouth is. Unlike so many of the promises that are made to us in the world that that, that do not keep their promise, And often the promises that we make to ourselves, Jesus not only speaks the word of God with authority, but he backs it up with words and works and deeds of authority. And so they're all asking, who is this rabbi? Who is this guy who is on the scene? And by the way, since we're all good little religious people showing up to church on a Sunday in Santa Fe, who is this guy who is confronting the religious establishment? Who who is this guy who is making the religious industrial complex really uncomfortable? Who is this guy who is, you know, causing a cringe reaction to big religion in the day? They want to know. And perhaps they're especially eager because this is a time when people were longing for hope. Uh, Malachi was the closing of the Old Testament canon. It's 400 years in the past. The Lord has ostensibly been silent. They're waiting on the coming of God's man, the Messiah, They think it's to overthrow Rome. God has a much bigger plan in mind. But here comes this Jesus healing people. And if you can imagine the state of the most advanced medicine 2,000 years ago, you might know that those who are helpless and hopeless in the days of Jesus would flock to a man that they believed that if they just got close enough to touch him, maybe they could be healed. Maybe there's hope. So these followers are a mixed bag with mixed motives. It's Mark's invitation to us to search our own hearts. Some are curious. Some are truly hungry to hear God's word. Some are just hungry and want a meal. Some are desperately longing for hope. Some want to be healed. Many, I'm sure, are skeptical, questioning, doubting. I don't know we got to go check this guy out. There's no way this could be real. And these are the folks that are crushing in. And I believe part of what's on display here is, is a welcome mat to all of us 
who put our hope and faith in Jesus, whether it's the tiniest little frail hope you barely got here today, or it's, you know, huge, joyful, I'm secure, and I believe, to come and crush in, to come and crush in on Jesus. That's where the answers are, are found. You know, not in our, in our, you know, complex systems of thinking and philosophy or our ability to control our own lives or our striving or our works, but crush in on Jesus. Do that. And so they do. So much so that we're told that Jesus needs a boat so that he can continue his ministry, basically a floating pulpit in the Sea of Galilee. And I want you to notice what, what Jesus does here when the crowds come crushing. Because I know a lot of pastors who would be like, whoo, the crowds are here. Now everybody give me your hat and let's pass the plate. Notice that he does not start asking everybody for money. Nor in the exhaustion of dealing with these people day in and day out, does he say, actually, I'm sorry you don't know, but I'm kind of a big shot now. I'm a leader now. I'm cool. I got a big ministry. I've written books. And I have like five bodyguards that make sure I can get my time for me before I need to, you know, go off onto my private jet. Beware. No. No, Jesus shows up for these people. Just notice the gospel beauty in this story. Compare and contrast it to our ideas of power and leadership in the world around us. He shows up. He heals. He welcomes. We're told that many came. And that word many in the Greek is really the word all. Hyperbole, exaggeration, all kinds of people from all kinds of places came. And what does he do? He doesn't sort them out. Let's see, who do I have time for and who don't I have time for? Because I'm a pastor, so let me see if I can find the rich people and the mature people. And the people that'll be loyal without questioning me too much. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He welcomes them all. It's a reminder that the, the church of God and the family of God and the ministry that comes from our head, Jesus, in and to and through the body is that of a hospital, right? And not a country club. As much as I'm sure there are some ER doctors who would love to turn away the repeat offender that comes through once or twice a week, they don't. Not in this country. In fact, if you struggle with addiction and you're, you're, or whatever and you're there a couple times a week, they let you in every time. Folks, that's our goal as a church. That's our goal. Low walls and a deep well. Let, let the needy and the broken come over the low walls, the turtle fence, and then the living water in the deep well. That can be what sorts them out, not you and me. Jesus shows up. And in this, Mark gives us two insights. First, into the life of Christ. We already confessed this in the Chalcedonian Creed. He's fully man. I just love this again. It is so different than the ideas that human beings have come up with for the lowercase g gods over the years. He's fully man. He needs to rest. He needs space. He eats food. He uses the bathroom. He goes to sleep. Jesus is fully man. You see, on earth, Jesus didn't just walk around with like a Superman thing under his robe waiting at any moment to go into a booth and rip it off and be, you know, who he most truly is, super Jesus. Now, he was fully man and fully God. So much so that the book of Hebrews in chapter 5 tells us that Jesus learned, let me quote it, son though he was, son of God though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. 
And Mark gives us this window into the God-man, into Jesus who is the Christ, that he, he was tempted in every way that you are. He suffered in the ways that we do. He wasn't Superman. He had to rely on the Holy Spirit. He had to trust the word of his Father that now is not yet the time. Insight into his humanity, but in the same story, insight into his divinity, into his power, because who else can command or even hear and know about the unclean spirits and silence their mouths? Who else, when you get those little voices in your head, those little arrows from the devil, you're not loved, you're not for real, God doesn't care about you. You've been abandoned. It's hopeless. It's helpless. Condemnation. Who else but Jesus can speak over you the words of Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We get a little picture of Job in the throne room here where the accuser, Satan, the Satan, the liar, comes to God to tempt Job, but he can do nothing apart from what God wills, allows, and ordains. The Satan is but a fallen angel. He is finite. He knows the Bible pretty well, but he can't be everywhere at once, and he can't lift a finger against God's anointed without the sovereign hand of the Lord himself. So the evil and unclean spirits, what do they do? They try to control Jesus. They, they say his name. In ancient Near Eastern literature, this would have been a form of trying to take control. So who's going to win? Who can use the bigger words? This is common among people who are manipulative with their words, who engage in gaslighting to use the name. But their intentions are malicious. And Jesus shuts them up with a word. It will be his way his time, and on his terms. So this is the man that the crowds are crushing in on. This is Jesus, fully man, fully God, who came to welcome men of all kinds. This is why we make much of Jesus. This is why this isn't man's religion, but it's something new entirely. The answer to will he welcome is a resounding yes from our text. He will welcome. The question remains for us, will you follow? And if you will, to the second point, what does it mean to be his disciple? Who gets to be and how do we do it? Here we get the story of the 12 who are called and commissioned. Jesus goes up to the mountainside, which for the original hearers would have been a clear indication that he is now in the place and the seat of Moses, a new and greater Moses with authority. He brings many up with him, and he chooses apostles. Now, the word apostle means sent one. Sent one. It simply means sent one. That's what an apostle is. They are not sent with, with their own ideas, but they are sent to be ambassadors and stewards of the proclamation of the king. And that sense where the apostles go, they're like embassies around the world. In one sense, the New Testament speaks of the apostles as a specific appointment to the office of apostleship, those who were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ, chosen by Christ, and through whom God chose to bring his word by the Spirit. So in that sense, you are not an apostle. And in that sense, be very careful of anyone who comes to you and says, I'm an apostle. But in another sense, in the sense of being a sent one, all of those who trust and follow Jesus have this apostolic 
flavor. We are the called so that we might be the sent. And to this, Jesus gives them their purpose. We see it in the next verse. Two things. He appointed the 12 so that. One, they might be with him. And two, he might send them out to preach and have authority over the demons. On the one hand, Jesus shows us something. (laughs) The first thing that he shows us is that he's not meant to do this alone. And I think if Jesus needed friends, if he needed companions, if Jesus wasn't trying to be John Wayne, then that's really important for us. If Jesus, like Moses, understands that as a man who is God that works through means, he needs an Aaron and a her to hold up his arms, part of what we need to understand with, the, with, with this appointment of be with me is I am not meant to be alone. We were not meant to live alone, but to know each other and to minister together. But a deeper aspect of discipleship is identified as well. And this is going to take a second to tease out because it is tied to an understanding of what it meant to be a rabbi and what it meant for that rabbi to call disciples in this second temple era in the time of Jesus. It's not only important, but it's beautiful. You've heard the words, you know, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you. Well, that's rabbi talk. That's what a rabbi would say because a rabbi's interpretation of the Old Testament was called their yoke. And a young Jewish boy who followed a rabbi as a disciple of that rabbi would take not part of the yoke, not the part that he wanted, you know, like a little spiritual buffet, but he would take the entire yoke and submit to it entirely. One scholar puts it this way, a rabbi chooses his followers in the days of Jesus with utmost most care. It was, to say the least, the most important moment in the life of one who was chosen to follow as a disciple. All of this came after three stages with increasing intensity of rabbinical school, yeshivas. By the end of the third school, had they not yet been weeded out, these students would have memorized the entire Old Testament by heart. Not just Torah, the first five books, the whole enchilada. At this point, they might be ready to be called as a disciple, but only the best of the best were chosen. And if they were chosen, the rabbi would say to the disciple, familiar words to us all, come, follow me. When the rabbi spoke those words to the prospective young man, he would leave his life his family, his belongings, his culture and community to follow the rabbi entirely and in total submission to every word of his new and exalted teacher. But we must understand that the goal of the student wasn't merely to learn things from the rabbi, data points, words, propositions. To follow the rabbi means not just to learn, but to do Not just to know all that I know, but to do what I do, go where I go, stay close to me and imitate every move and action. Let your new life now be shaped by my life in word and in deed. That's Christian discipleship. 
not to learn things about Jesus. Let me reiterate. The demons themselves know the word of God and shudder, James says. Not to learn data points about the Old and New Testament, but to be shaped deeply by Jesus through his vital life, connected to the vine by the Spirit, and to become and transformed more into his image. So much so that they developed an expression. For many of these rabbis traveled, as you know, on dusty roads, and you would see a rabbi walking, and then you would see a little gaggle of disciples following the rabbi. And so an expression developed where they would say, May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you follow your rabbi so closely, so nearly, not just what he says, but what he does and how he does it and where he goes and who he loves and how he cares and what he believes. May you be so close to his heart and his life that you are literally covered in the dust of his sandals. When we think of a disciple, we often think of someone who knows a lot about God. But the Old Testament, and in the days of Jesus, did not possess that category. It wasn't someone who knew a lot, but someone who had given over their life by faith through the grace of the rabbi to be completely reshaped into looking more and more like the one that they followed and loved. That's what it means when Jesus says he appointed disciples to be with him. Not just let's hang out, sit around the campfire and tell stories, but be with me, be near to me, be in me, take of my life, eat my body, drink my blood, by faith be with me, and I will make you who you were meant to be. We know that's true, not because it's some little sentimental hallmark thing or bumper sticker for your Subaru. We know that's true because of who he calls. And we just have to let it scandalize us. You just got to let the Bible kick you in the rear every day, and especially on Sunday. Because the 12 guys that Jesus chooses deeply offend, deeply offend all of our pretensions and assumptions and expectations about power and leadership and worthiness, and who should be in and who should be out, they are indeed a motley, disorganized, and disunified crew that could only be brought together by something bigger than money, or fame, or politics, or a religious movement, or overthrowing Rome, but a new heart. Jesus calls the twelve And of course, this would have immediately cued those original hearers into the 12 tribes of Israel, right? The 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. Jesus is doing a new thing. This is the restoration, the restoration of a new and restored community of God's people, a new Israel, and even a new community as it pertains the way that they faced the nations themselves. R.C. Sproul said this, and I think it's good. The 12, therefore, represent the church in miniature. This is us. Scott Sauls put it this way. Sometimes it takes having differences, not understanding one another, and even being a little bit irritated and bored with one another to remind us that the church is a family and not a club. 
Jesus calls 12 who have clearly not finished the third level of rabbinical school. We know that because they've gone back to practice the trades of their fathers. They are not wearing fancy robes. They are not of the wealthy families of Jerusalem. Their names are not known. They're not cosmopolitan. All this is meant to make us look and say there's no way. Because of the moments in your life when you feel like there's no way, Jesus is here to prove to us in the calling of the 12 that he is the way. That all glory and honor and praise goes to him. We are meant to say, when we look at these guys and go, yeah, right. We are meant to say, exactly. Exactly. Because this band of brothers shouldn't work. Except that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And here on display once more is his perfect and unconditional covenant love to his people. Now, we like to talk about God's unconditional love, don't we? God has unconditional love for me. It's not unconditional. It is not unconditional. Or to put it another way, you are indeed saved by works. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Let me explain. Buckle up. There is a condition because God is just. Oh, sweet Jesus, just, you know, with his hair straightener and his blue sash. He just loves everybody. God is just. He does not wince at sin. He is holy. We read Revelation. Do you believe it? He cannot cannot just wince at the injustice and the brokenness in the world that's going on that you're reading about in the news every day. So the condition of God's eternal and forever and covenant love to us is the condition of Christ himself who met all the conditions of God's justice as he hung, torn asunder on a cross to not only die for our sin that we might be forgiven, but to bear the full just wrath of God so that it doesn't fall upon us who deserve it. This band of brothers shouldn't work exactly. It is Jesus who is the condition of God's perfect love to the undeserving, the outcast the scattered and the unworthy. It is Jesus who raises the dead. It is Jesus who is the first fruits of the new creation. It is Jesus who doesn't love you because you are so nice and cute and lovely to him, but because he is a promise keeper, he sets his love upon you. This is what makes the 12 powerful and potent and useful and effective in the world, and it's no different for us. This is what makes them worthy Not because of who they are, where they come from, but because they are his. And all the conditions have been met. And all the love is freely given. They are welcomed. We are welcomed to this king. My encouragement to us this morning is let us follow. Let's get dusty with King Jesus. And let's go from here. Let's do it out there. And have good news to share with our friends and the people we love in this city. Let's pray. Father in heaven, glory be to your name. All praise and honor and glory for you are just and holy. And we know that there aren't guys like, you know, Hitler who just live a horrible life and then get to, you know, take their own at the end and face no consequences. There are consequences for our actions, Lord. We are so thankful that all the conditions and consequences have fallen on Christ. 
so that your invitation to follow you is indeed with teeth, costly grace, an invitation into the one who has made that way possible on our best days and our worst days. Lord, we confess some days we're strong and good. Some days we're really struggling and really doubting and really wondering. Some days we're confident and arrogant like Peter, calling down judgment like James and John, nameless like a bunch of those other disciples that we don't know anything about like Thaddeus and Bartholomew. Some days there's betrayal in our heart, Lord. Often there are doubts. And yet your faithfulness is not based on any of those things, but on the promise that you have both made and kept. So would that be real to us as we come to this table by faith to feast on your promises and to receive and know your real spiritual presence? Jesus, through the, through the signs and symbols of bread and juice, would you spiritually by faith lift us up into heaven and remind us who we are, sons and daughters of the king, followers of the great rabbi, total submission to you. Jesus, have our, have our lives because your way is better. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.